by for a second. Didn't expect it to be the longest train that's ever gone by, so that we'll just go. Uh, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. We're in the, we're going to be looking at 2 Samuel in just a little bit, and we're going to be talking about Veterans Day. Veterans Day is a huge thing, but not so much in the church. I think it's a big deal. A lot of us think of it as kind of a secular holiday. Is that kind of in the realm of where most of us think about it? It's not so much like family get-together kind of deal, 4th of July, you know, celebrating by blowing things up and things like that. But instead, it's this holiday that just simply means for some of you, you have a day off. And when we think about it, in the church, it doesn't really come up too often when we think about Veterans Day, but this is, it kind of shifted over time. So they started in 1938 is when they first said it, may, it was known as Armistice Day. And it was supposed to be a day that we remember peace. And then World War II happened, and they said, okay, this is like, this is not necessarily going to flow forever, this idea of peace, so we've got to change that. So in 1954, they shifted it. November 11th from now on is going to be a day where we recognize veterans. And just for... Uh, so we recognize how many have served in the armed forces. Can we just get a hand? We got, we got a number of them. I know we have a number of them here. So thank you for that. We appreciate that. The, the thing that we're going to be looking at today is we talk about um, war and army. And it, a lot of this has sort of changed, I think, in my lifetime. When I grew up, I loved watching some of these kind of war movies. And I love watching especially Westerns. So Westerns, like when I was a kid, I enjoyed watching Westerns. Does anyone listen to like Louis L'Amour books or read Louis L'Amour books? A French culturist, I appreciate it. So Louis L'Amour, he wrote these classic, he's kind of paperback, this, what do they call those, uh, dime, there's some word for it, these, what are they? Dime novels, something like that. You could go get these at the store and you'd read the westerns and like kids would have the outfits and we would play that. I can't even say it out loud now, but we used to play a game called Cowboys and Indians with it. Like you can't even say that now. But that's what we'd do as kids. We'd run around with our guns and, pew, pew, and they didn't have purple, you know, like the orange on it and stuff like that. These were dangerous weapons. These were the, ser these are the real deal. They look like, you know, like an eight-year-old had somehow had a Colt 45. So, I mean, people had to be worried about this. So we would do this. And why do we like watching these movies? When I, you know, listening to these books. So I even have my kids listen to them when we go somewhere on vacation. If we're going to go anywhere to the West, we listen to a Louis L'Amour book. Because then there's the, this issue, you know, the guy comes to town and he seems like he's really evil. Uh, th this guy's questionable, but then there's the other guy who's supposed to be upright, trying to marry the girl, but he's actually a dirtbag, and then the guy who's supposed to be, you think is evil, is actually good, and then that guy wins the girl. Has anyone, if you haven't read these, it's actually the same thing. I just described everyone, and then, of course, it comes down to the, the evil guy shows up and says, you want a belly full of lead? And then they, they have this nice, and of course, what happens is they draw. And the, the, the hero is somehow mysteriously is remarkably fast, faster than anyone on the whole front range ever. And he, he takes out the enemy and he marries the girl and he redoes the whole farm that was in trouble. This is, the same story happens again and again, but I've listened probably to every single one. So I fall for it because I like heroes. Heroes are great. Like, and you watch stories and movies, you think about these old movies, about war movies, there's heroes, and you're like, I like having a hero. Most of that, I think, is sort of shifted to to sports now because I think the reality of the heroes in the old-time movies versus the reality you start seeing realistic war movies and it changes your perspective I think on war like when it was just like watching MASH or something like that you're like wow war doesn't seem that bad I could sign up for the GI Bill then you watch like Full Metal Jacket and you're like you shouldn't be watching Full Metal Jacket kids that was a trick but 
But you watch something like that, and it's utterly terrifying, and you sense this violence, and you sense, and we, we start to appreciate this more as a culture, the things that they have seen, right? They show, like, kids can play Call of Duty now or something like that, right? And they go around, and they shoot somebody, and the, the person just sort of melts into the ground. They disappear, I think. I've never played, but I'm guessing the body doesn't just stay there with graphic head wounds. This is a guess. Does it? This is a guess, <laughs> But it doesn't, it doesn't, right? Because this violence, the violent nature of it kind of goes. We're in a sanitary world. Even I can think of the Persian Gulf back, was that the 90s? And when they were talking about the war with Persian Gulf. And it was not. He would show you what this violence looks like. Instead, it was really separated. It looked like a computer game. And they would talk about it. I think they were Scud missiles or something like that. And they would show it. It was like, do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do. And it looked more like Top Gun or something. And they would go and they would take out the target. And we were remarkably successful. And we would do full wars, right? And there would be like 30 casualties, not millions upon millions upon millions. This has sort of gotten sanitary and on some level. And I don't think kids necessarily appreciate all the violence that goes into it. That doesn't mean there wasn't violence. If any of you have had a grandparent that served in the war, anyone have a grandfather that served in the war, how often did they talk about war? Not, not a peep. Not a word. And I've never met anyone that says, here, let me tell you some war stories. They just clam up and said, you don't need to hear about that. Right? And we get the same sense as people come and they go on tours and they come back and they become silent. And we've talked about the high suicide rate. It's astronomical. I think it's 10 times the national average because they see things that are so terrifying that you can't get out of your mind. I talked to my, my kids about that and the confirmation kids. I said, watching violent things, you can't get out of your mind. And I say the same thing about pornography. This is visceral. And it's very, if you see these things, you, they just doesn't leave your mind. And so these young men and women have served at 18, right? I'm 43, I can't, I don't even like to watch scary movies, but they've seen reality, and it's a terrifying thing. So when we look at the Bible, though, it's not so sanitary. Like, the stories of the Bible aren't quite like that. And if you start reading through the pages of Scripture, you get to, like, the, the book of Joshua, there is a violence to it. Uh, people go against God, and it says 20,000 people were killed. There, there's a violence to it. Or it says the Levites, in anger, through God, righteous anger, went and killed like thousands of people. There's this violence to it, and there's something. So this is where I think we struggle a little bit. At least I do. I, I, the sanitary idea of war, and then where does God sit? And uh, the, the psalm that comes to mind when I think about it is Psalm 144. So if you've been in the military, maybe you've read that. But this is some of the beginnings of it. Uh, this is King David talking. And he said, uh, phrase to the Lord my rock, who trains my hands for war, my fingers for battle. And he starts talking about this, and then he goes on, and he describes how God, his feeling for God when he's in war, he is my loving God and my fortress, my stronghold and my deliverer, my shield in whom I take refuge. And so David looks at God, and he says, this is who my refuge is. And the, the section I want to read to you is the heroes of old. And these are renowned men. These were David's mighty men. And Scott did a fantastic job pronouncing the names. I've, I'm a little worried about myself doing these. But we're going to look at 2 Samuel just to recognize that even in the Bible, amidst all this violence in war, this necessity was happening in a sinful world. And the people then recognized the people who served for them. So these are the names of David's mighty men. Oh, this is going to be good. Uh, Joseph Bashabeth, a uh, Takamonite who was chief of the three, he raised his spear against 800 men whom he killed in one encounter. That's pretty good. 
right? I mean, I imagine the kids back then had a Joseph bathroom. If it could fit, it was the first hyphenated name ever before sports and it was cool. He had a hyphenated name on the back. It, this guy goes against 800 guys and wins. I think that's pretty solid. That's pretty good. Uh, the next hymn was Eliezer, son of Dodai, the Ahohite, and one of the three mighty warriors. He was with David when they taunted, which is kind of awesome, they taunted the Philistines gathered at Pastamin for battle. Then the Israelites retreated. So basically saying everybody leaves, but Eliezer stood his ground and struck down the Philistines till his hand grew tired and froze to the sword. That is awesome. This is the original Kung Fu grip, if you guys have ever seen the action figures. Has anyone ever done something so long that your hand is frozen in place? With a sword? No, most of us were like hammering or something like that. And, and now we have nail guns, so it's like, man, I'm so tired. This does all the work. I just have to hold the gun. They, they're fighting so long that it freezes to it. So the Lord brought out a great victory that day. The troops returned to Eliezer, but not actually to fight, only to strip the dead. Uh, next to him was Shema, son of Agi, the Hararite. When the Philistines banded together at the place where there was a field full of lentils, Israel's troops fled from them. But Shema took his stand in the middle of the field. He defended it and struck the Philistines down. The Lord brought about a great victory on that day. The chapter goes on and on and on about like all these mighty men that have happened. And why, why would God even put this in the Bible? To recognize that there are heroes that made the situation the Israelite people had today possible. The same thing we do on Veterans Day. But the reason why they even had to do this kind of goes back a little bit in history. So I'm going to give you a couple dates and just speedy quick. So 1500 is when Moses was leading the people out of Egypt. So he leads all the people out of Egypt. And then there's this time where they go into slavery and uh, before that. And then they go out with Moses. There's a long time. We have the time of the judges. And the time of the judges only happens because we think of the people going into the land of Israel. God had a simple command to the people. Here's the deal. I'm going to give you the land. But here's what I want you to do. When you cross the Jordan River, you take care and you annihilate everybody. Yeah, pretty serious command. I mean, as, as this is one of the harder things. If you've met someone who's not Christian and they're like, they, they read, they're barely into the Bible and they're like, what in the world? This is supposed to be a God of love and yet he brings this destruction. Why does God bring this destruction to the people? Very simply, the outside influence of the people changes their hearts. And they start to go after the idols of all those people. So God says, when you go into this world, I want you to take care of everything. So when you read stories, right? They go around Jericho, and it says they kill everybody inside. And it's like, wow. Speed ahead a little bit. Uh, we get down to the time of David. That's 500 years after Joshua went in. And a thorn in the side of the people at that time, King David, was a guy, the group called the Anakites. Why are the Anakites an issue? Because the people didn't actually take care of all the Anakites. God says, I want you to take care of the Perizzites and the Amorites and all these other people. And it says the people of Dan had to live up in the hills because they couldn't even go into the plains. And so David is so distraught about this that they were supposed to clear out all the land. This man after God's own heart says, this is what I'm going to do. My mighty men and I are going to go fight. And so they fight, right? And, but for what reason? When you think about all this, this is, I think, the struggle when you think about Veterans Day. For what reason do soldiers go to fight? Talk to a recruiter, I think it's a little bit different, right? There used to be a time when you would just say, like, go America. And, and I think there is a struggle, right? If, if my own kids were talking about the military, 
I probably would not be talking about the greater good, if I'd be honest. If my own daughter said, I'm thinking about ordering, going into the Air Force, I'm like, that sounds like a great idea. And why would I say that as a dad? Because possibly it would pay for her school, which saves me thousands and thousands of dollars a year. And I'm like, this could be a good thing for you. This would be an option. That makes sense. And I am guessing, and I'm not going to look around for the same guy, how many of you took advantage of something like the GI Bill and got benefits for that? I think I would guess the majority of people said this is one of the benefits that happens when you go through it. But is that the real reason you went into the military? Real people and real heroes don't just kill to kill. All the bad guys, when you watch the movies, when you watch like uh, Wyatt Earp or something like that, and the guy that Doc Holliday goes against, he just kills to kill. And he says, the taste for blood, they talk about that in these books. They just want to kill people. Real people battle, and real people go to war because there's something bigger. So I want to look at one example of David as he gets ready to go against Goliath. This is a classic story. He goes against Goliath, and you're saying, why did David? They have all these things that he promises him. Whoever will fight will get one of my daughters. He gets to marry into the royal family. Whoever fights is going to get their taxes. They're not going to have to pay taxes for a year, and this is this great benefit. But here are the reasons David said as he goes against the Philistines. So imagine this moment. You're about to go against the largest man around, and this is like a one versus one. This is like if um, my dad's bigger than your dad. If you defeat our best warrior, you, we're subject to you. This was it. So now all, there's not all this death, this big battle, and here's what David says. David said to the Philistine, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. This very day I will give, you the, give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds of the wild, and animals of the whole world will know that it is a, a God in Israel. All those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you into our hands. What was his purpose? His purpose was that I want the world to, I cannot handle, and that's really what inspired him when he would come and he would taunt. So David would stand and he would look at, a Goliath is looking at all the people and he would taunt them. And he called them dogs and he's making fun of them and he's making fun of God. David comes to see this and he says, no one is going to talk about our God that way. And so he says, I've got to do something about it. Real warriors and real heroes don't just kill to kill, they kill for a greater purpose and the greater purpose for David was so that God could receive the glory. I think the same thing is true very clearly when you talk about veterans. If you get really down to it, right, the GI Bill's great and some of these other benefits, and if you're in the Air Force, you get nice housing, right, in the Army, you get nice food, and there's all these things, and you get respect when you're in the, the Marines and all these things, but I think the real reason is not so when they come back, they get a 10% discount at Lowe's. That's my guess. The real reason is not so that they clap in the airport when you go by. That is not the reason they do it. The reason they do that is they know that before they were born, there are people that gave their life so that we could have freedom, and they want to carry on that legacy that says, I am willing, because freedom is so great, to give up my life if necessary. Now, the comparison is really easy when you're talking about the Christian church, when you're talking about a thankful heart and looking back. We can look back and say, we have freedom, we have this status because of the people who have, men and women have given their life. But I think we look back and say, obviously, Christ is the one who stood in our place. I'm not the one who went to hell. You're not the one who went to hell. You're not the one who went to the cross. You're not the one who suffered. You're not the one who was tempted in every way, but was perfect in every way. It was Christ. 
And so on a day like this, when you think about a thankful heart, I think every time it's the first thing that comes out of my family's mouth, we go around the table at Thanksgiving and you say, what are you thankful for? The first thing they say is faith and then usually family, right? But the faith, the fact that Christ has done this, when you look back that you are in this particular moment forgiven in Christ, gives you a sense of a thankful heart. That could be the end. Actually, it'd be a pretty good sermon, I think. I think we just look back and say we're thankful for the freedom that we get. We get to worship Christ, and, and Christ worships us. But I think there's something more to it. David, this is Psalm uh, 144, so I'll do the beginning and then go to the end, and then I'm going to tie it into what's probably most common in your life. So praise be to the Lord my rock, who trains my hands for war, my fingers for battle. He is my loving God and my fortress, my stronghold and my deliverer, my shield in whom I take refuge, who subdues people under me. From the deadly sword, deliver me, rescue me from the hands of foreigners whose mouths are full of lies, whose right hands are deceitful. Then, then our sons in their youth will be like well-nurtured plants, and our daughters will be like pillars carved to adorn a palace. Our barns will be filled with every kind of provision. Our sheep will increase by thousands, by tens of thousands in our fields. Our oxen will draw heavy loads. There will be no breaching of walls, no going into captivity, no cry of distress in our streets. Blessed is the people of whom this is true. Blessed is the people whose God is the Lord. We could stop at veterans and we could stop at Christ and maybe that, that's appropriate. Did you ever watch the NBA? Does anyone watch the NBA? Does anyone watch the NBA before the playoffs? How about that? Right, so it's not that very exciting, but I, once in a while I go back and watch videos, and you can see like the greatest NBA, and you can see some of these videos, the old-timey like 50s kind of voice, and here is, you know, that super high, I don't know what, that was a microphone thing, but they're like, the Houdini of the hardwood. Does anyone know who the Houdini of the hardwood is? Bob Cousy. So Bob Cousy, I believe, played for the Celtics, uh, and he would dribble around, and this is honestly what it looks like. I don't know if it's, by, I, this is on video, so I'm more embarrassed, but it looks like this. And then once in a while, he does a behind-the-back pass. So I just looked at I couldn't get it to translate. I was trying to get a YouTube video. So you could see the highlights of the Houdini of the hardwood, Bob Cousy. And he was known as the ultimate passer in that league, right? So you watch these videos, and what does Bob Cousy look like? He looks like an elementary school basketball player. That's what he looks like. And I'm sure he was incredibly good. And every, they have these highlights. He's dribbling, and the highlight is this. He throws it up to a guy who alley-oops it and, like, and doesn't underhand. They didn't dunk much then. It was illegal for a long time. So these are the highlights, and I was like, ah, that's really fascinating. So I'm watching this video thinking to myself, Bob Cousy looks like a 12-year-old boy. He literally looks like a 12-year-old boy. LeBron James is 6'8". I think Bob Cousy is probably like 5'8". So he's, he's this, this small man doing these tricks, and Bob Cousy gets on, and he starts to talk. And I thought he was going to talk about the legend of Bob Cousy and how good he was and how he, he did all these things that no one could do. And if you watch, this is what he said. The things I was doing back then, every 12-year-old boy is doing on the schoolyard today. What does it say? How do guys dribble today? If you ever watch NBA players dribble, they have a thing even called like the yo-yo dribble. So they're dribbling with this hand. They put so much spin on it like it's this pass that it kicks back to this hand and they drive past guys. These guys, when they dribble, they have one hand, they go like this. It hasn't touched the ground. They come around their legs and they get it with this leg. Kyrie Irving does a behind-the-back move, right? That takes years to learn for a kid. He does it one-handed. It goes here, he catches it, and pulls it back with one hand. It's because Bob Cousy 
did things that people had never seen. So every little kid who could watch the black and white television is go, I want to be as good as Bob Cousy. And then the next generation watches it, and it's Michael Jordan. You think, I want to be like Michael Jordan. I want to shoot like Michael Jordan. I want to hold my hand up and stick my tongue out. And then Ellen Iverson comes, and it's a six-foot-one guy who leads the NBA in scoring. And you're like, how can a human dribble like that? Kyrie Irving watches Alvin Iverson. And now he's doing the things that we see with yo-yo dribbles behind the back and all these things. What are kids watching today? Bob Cousy is an afterthought. They want to be better than Kyrie Irving. Every single part. So I watched a a show just yesterday. It was called uh, The Biggest Little Farm. Has anyone seen this documentary? They had this idea. I'll make it short. But they had this idea that they wanted to go back to traditional farming. And so they go in California, they get this farm, they get investors in the ground, they can't even get like a pitchfork into an inch. And they meet this kind of hippie-ish guy named John who says the most divert, you need to be so diverse, farming is going to feel like surfing. Some of you that grew up on a farm, I think that's what you would say, right? Like farming feels like surfing. It's so like, it's almost spiritual. Uh, But what he was saying is like all these things, and I'll give you one example from the movie, not to spoil it. So they had this coyotes, and this is this, um, they do not believe in killing anything really unless they absolutely have to. They had a coyote that was killing their chickens. He got so mad he went and shot the chickens, and like all the volunteers there are like crying. They can't believe they killed this animal. They're trying to put fences up. The coyotes are killing their chickens. Meanwhile, they have all this, uh, I think their gopher problem. They're eating the roots of their fruit trees. Is this all making sense so far? And uh, he feels terrible that he killed this coyote, and he comes up with a solution that they're going to have a watchdog for their chickens. So this it feels like cat in a hat, right? So they get a watchdog for their chickens so the coyote does not go in the fence to eat their chickens. So the coyotes don't have chickens to eat. So what do the coyotes eat? Gophers. And so they, they're talking about this giant, like thousands of animal, uh, like wildlife is coming. It's a fascinating documentary. It's really good. 90 plus stars on, or uh, tomatoes on Rotten Tomatoes. This whole cycle that even the predators in this life cycle come around and eventually animals die. And it's like the circle of life from Lion King, the movie. But I mean, you get this idea. But how did the couple even know that they should do these things? Because the hippie guy named John says, this is what you should do. Don dies and they do these amazing things thing that I want you to go from today is when you think Thanksgiving, it's easy to remember our veterans, it's easy to remember Christ, but I would push to say the reason you're at where you're at today is because of someone else. And I think if you'd say, I, you know, I'm a doctor and I worked really hard, or I'm an engineer and I worked really hard, or I'm a pastor and I worked really hard, there is a generation of people that gave up a whole lot of things so that you could be where you're at. I'll give you one simple example, and I think I've shared it before. Uh, My great-grandfather never went to school, I think through like third grade or something like that, and somehow with no education started like a lumber yard called Redland Lumber. So this is my claim to fame. If you are a Terry Redland fan, no Terry Redland. There's more Terry Redland fans than than people that listen to Louis L'Amour. So Terry Redland is a relative of mine, not very close, but we'll keep that, you know. Not enough that I get any money from his multiple million dollar paintings, but there is one painting that says Redland Lumber on it. That's my great-grandfather. So this is my story back in South Dakota. But then it goes down to my grandmother and grandfather, who their farthest education they had was eighth grade and a freshman year in high school. Then they had to go work on the farm. Then it passes down. So my mom, they said, education's a big deal. What happens? So they pushed my mom to go to school. And so then my mom has five kids. My dad's a teacher. My mom's a teacher. What happens? All five kids go to school. Now, I think it's probably going to a different generation where we're saying that there's, you know, trades are being things. But you get this idea that this doesn't just happen. Somewhere someone said, just like David, 
I want the life of my kids to be better. And if you go away from anything today, you say, someone, I stood on someone's shoulder to have what I have. What is the final, final thing? So you know my favorite podcast. The only one I listen to is How I Built This. Usually at the end, Guy Raz says, what do you, why, are you, why do you think you had success? Was it because you're so amazing and hard work and ingenuity or ingenuity, or do you think it's because of luck? And then when they talk about luck, I'm always waiting for them to talk about a moment in time where something happened, and that's often the case, but about half the time they go, I, was, I would say there's a lot of luck involved because I was born into a family where my parents encouraged me to try something. The final thing for you, I think, is we walk away and be thankful. A thankful heart is not only one that is thankful, a thankful heart acts. And I think the question you have to ask yourself is, who can stand on my shoulders? And who in my life around at work, and who in my life in my family, and who in life are the people that I know that is here, that I can let them stand on my shoulders and do greater things than I ever did? I think... I don't know who would be more proud, my grandfather when my mom graduated college or my mom. My guess is my grandfather. And I think you find the greatest joy in life is that when you stand in Christ, it's not about how far you get as an individual. When you stand in Christ and know where you're at, you can pour out into your life so someone can look back one day. Maybe you're a veteran and maybe you're just a dad or maybe you're just someone at work and said, the reason I'm here today is because of this person. Heavenly Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, very clearly we stand on the shoulder of the giant, which is you. You are the one who took our sins away. You are the one who gives us the freedom to be who we are. You're the one who makes it so we don't have to scratch and claw for the rest of our life to get some kind of recognition. Instead, we can be content with who you've made us, that in you we can come when we're greedy and selfish and self-centered and want everything about us. You forgive that sin too. But give us a heart that is a heart, a giving heart, one that recognizes in, in the thanksgiving that someone, we stand on someone's shoulders. Let us be the foundation for someone else so that they can do amazing things in this world. And we know the most amazing thing that anyone can do is proclaim your gospel and share the same truth that you are the center of our life and you're the center of our heart. We ask this in your name. Amen.